Yes. Hey, I'm Jake Brennan, and I want to tell you about Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I host. Disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Fleetwood Mac, Nipsey Hussle, Cardi B, Ozzy Osbourne, Taylor Swift, Tupac, The Beatles, Amy Winehouse, Jay-Z, The Grateful Dead, and so many more. This is not the music history you've heard before. This is an uncensored, immersive look at the lives of musical icons as seen through the crimes they've committed or that have been perpetrated against them. Did Jerry Lee Lewis murder his fifth wife? What really happened to Sam Cooke in that seedy motel at 3 a.m.? And how did the Rolling Stones wind up sleeping with the First Lady? Wait, what? New episodes of Disgraceland drop every Tuesday with bonus episodes released on Mondays and Thursdays. So get in, buckle up, and join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Rock and roll. About a Girl is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. Let me tell you about Jack White. The prime mover of the white stripes. Retro hipster, part-time upholsterer. Enfant terrible of Detroit's Roots Rock Revival. A promo trickster myth maker whose fables of his own life are as much an art form as anything else he creates. But this story isn't about him. This story is about Meg White, his fake sister, his real ex-wife, the secretive salinger of rock, the woman who gave him his name, and whose strong and simple drumming gave the White Stripes music its pounding heart before she once again disappeared from view. This story is about a girl. first thing to know about Meg is that she doesn't say much. Famously reclusive, reserved, shy, rock and roll's loudest introvert. There are so many things about her no one, not even her friends, seem to know. So there's no meet-cute to this story, or at least not one we would know about. It's said that Meg and Jack first encountered each other at Memphis Smoke, a blues bar where Meg worked as a bartender, or maybe a waitress. It might have been an open mic night, and Jack might have been there to read some of his poems. It was right after they'd graduated from their respective high schools, or maybe right before. What they said to each other? Who made the first move? No one seems to know the details. Well, Jack and Meg know, but you can't necessarily believe anything Jack says. And Meg? Meg's not talking. This is who they were before they met. Jack Gillis, the youngest of ten children, seven years behind his next oldest sibling. By the time he was in high school, he was the only kid left in his parents' old three-story house, making his own fun, developing a wild imagination. At about 16, he was enough of an oddball that he started hanging out at a local upholstery shop where the owner, an older conceptual artist named Brian Muldoon, 
taught him the art of repairing old furniture while simultaneously turning him on to garage and punk bands like the Stooges and MC5. Jack and Muldoon started jamming together in the back of the shop. When he wasn't there, Jack would spend hours in the attic of his parents' house, noodling on guitar or on the drum kit one of his brothers left up there. After high school, Jack opened his own upholstery business. He sewed poems into the chairs he rebuilt for future upholsterers to find. He made art out of found things, like a speaker he stole from a church he did an upholstery job for. He cut Dr. Pepper cans up and welded them back together in new shapes. He mounted cross-sections of toy cars like ethnological specimens. He put together a band, Two Star Tabernacle, and he played with other bands around town. The Goes, the henchmen. Anyone who met him in his early days, as a musician, an upholsterer, an artist, remembers Jack pretty well. He was a classic 90s eccentric, skinny and intense, with a dozen odd enthusiasms at any given time. Meg White was the opposite. Not many people seemed to remember much about her around this time. Those who did would mostly use two words to describe her, quiet and sweet. A moon-faced girl with an enigmatic smile and a shy manner, Meg, well, didn't say much. She didn't get in trouble and she didn't excel at anything in particular. An under-the-radar type. When she got older, she knew a lot of artists and musicians, but she was neither. If Jack's creativity was constantly aimed outward, hers was internal. She lived in her own world, she would tell the filmmaker Jim Jarmusch, and other people just seemed far away. As a little kid, when it snowed, she would go outside and shovel the snow into a huge pile and tunnel inside it. Inside the white-on-white space, she was all alone. No one could find her. It was like Superman's Fortress of Solitude a peaceful Arctic hideout far from everyone who didn't know her anyway. It was her favorite thing. What kind of cosmic magnetic force could have drawn these two opposites together? Unknown. But they did have a few things in common. Both had a formative obsession with color, for one. Meg drew rainbows as a kid, over and over. Thick primary hues. Jack color-coded his art projects. Everything about his upholstery business had to be yellow and black, from his tools to his business cards. He had an idea for a band that would exist entirely in red and white. Another crucial thing, neither of them left town for college after high school. Meg tried culinary school for a while, but mostly just worked waitressing. Jack had his always intense but ultimately directionless projects with upholstery and music. They were young, and could afford to just hang around Detroit, figuring, like most kids just starting their lives, that something would eventually happen. And one more less obvious commonality. Both of them maintained a certain distance from other people. Clearly Meg's whole MO. But Jack, too, kept others at guitar next length, swamping them with noise before they infiltrated his world. Maybe a quiet girl like Meg was drawn to Jack's elaborate, artsy intensity. Maybe Jack saw in her a perfect foil, a supporting actor for his dramas. Plus, she was the first girl who'd ever liked him back. Or maybe Meg's vast inner world just happened to mesh well with the one Jack constantly projected. 
Maybe together they were able to construct a perfect folly a deux, an ice castle for two, a fortress of solitude. We created our own little world, Meg said. When you do that, nothing can get you. They married in 1996, when they were both 21. It was a small ceremony, just friends and family. Meg White kept her name, but Jack Gillis became Jack White. How could he pass up a name like that? A single syllable, a common noun, the color that contains all colors. Not long after, they bought Jack's rambling old house from his parents, who were downsizing. They moved into the same rooms where he'd grown up, only now he wasn't the only kid in the house. Finally, he had a playmate. They lived there like two overgrown children. This was the height of the slacker era. The economy was good, and a generation of 20-somethings were working at record stores and coffee shops, making outsider art, and rediscovering craft trades. Everyone they knew was working on an art show or playing in a band or running a little gallery or a bar. When Jack wasn't fixing up furniture, which was often, and Meg wasn't bartending, they spent hours in the attic while Jack played guitar, just like he'd done in high school. Jack was playing Bowie's Moon Age Daydream. Meg was seated on the drum stool. Without much thought, she picked up the sticks and started to bang along. It didn't sound good, exactly. It didn't sound like Ziggy and the Spiders from Mars, for damn sure. It didn't sound much like anything else, really. It was strange and rough. Jack liked it. Meg pointed at a screwdriver sitting on the floor. Write a song about that, she challenged. Jack hit a chord and started yelling out lyrics about a fight he'd gotten into, or maybe wished he'd gotten into. They jammed a lot after that. Jack started to revive that idea he'd had for a band, one that came in red and white. Red and white like a starlight peppermint. Red and white, purity and passion. The colors of a fascist flag or a Coca-Cola can. Bold, fundamental, foundational. Like the blues and punk rock Jack loved. Like Meg's rudimentary, intuitive drumming. The White Stripes first performed on July 14, 1997 at a Detroit dive called The Gold Dollar. It helped that Meg's older sister, Heather, was on staff, and Jack was friends with the owner. Plus, the bar also had a Sunday night open mic for aspiring musicians. The White Stripes were definitely in the aspiring category. The owner, Neil, recorded their first show in return for Jack reupholstering a couple of chairs. Fifteen years later, Jack would release the recordings with his typical grandiose flair calling it Live on Bastille Day. Neil wasn't sure what to make of the duo act. The music was interesting, but it wasn't impressive. Jack played with his usual fiendish intensity, but Meg's drumming wasn't even always on tempo. She'd only touched the instrument for the first time a few months ago, and she didn't seem to really know what she was doing, but she did it anyway, drumming with her eyes closed, or else stoically gazing into the middle distance swaying into the kit. On the recording, the sparse audience's tepid reaction does not go unnoticed by Jack, who pronounces, let's bore you for a couple more here, and then does anything but. He yowls into the mic, dragging Meg shambolically along behind. During those early shows, Jack would visibly give her cues on stage. 
Sometimes he'd yell at her, and she'd just stare back at him, deadpan. Was he yelling at her as part of the act or just yelling at her? No one was sure it wasn't part of the gimmick because he also introduced her as his big sister. Everyone in town knew they were a married couple, but Jack stuck to the sibling story, just like he stuck to the color scheme. A red and white swirl painted on Meg's kick drum, red and white stage outfits, red cloth draped over their amp. He even dyed his hair red. The conceit of the band was that they were two siblings who started playing together in the family attic. He told everyone that Meg's drumming was naive and childlike and that was the sound he wanted. Meg's sound is like a little girl trying to play the drums and doing the best she can. He kept saying this long after her drumming got better. For the first year, they opened for other bands at the Gold Dollar, the Garden Bowl, the Magic Stick. People started showing up early to catch the White Stripes instead of the headline act. Then that curious audience turned into ardent fans. A few months after that first gig, November, the Gold Dollar was packed. Someone pulled out a camcorder and captured a totally different band. Meg still follows Jack, but does so with ease, fluid and feeling it. A genuine drummer. Meg was freezing her ass off. It was 1999, January in Detroit an arctic badland that made her long for the relative comfort of her homemade fortress of solitude. Instead, she and Jack were in the cavernous downtown studio known as Ghetto Recorders, making their first record. Further aggravating Meg, who liked to play drums barefoot, was the broken glass littering the studio's concrete floor. They'd signed with the Los Angeles label that specialized in raw punk and blues called Sympathy for the Record Industry. Jack's kind of outfit. It was run by an art collector slash toy maker known as Long Gone John. The label had been reaching out to a few of the bands in the Detroit scene, and the White Stripes made a handshake deal. The songs were all by Jack, some of them recycled from his previous bands, but stripped down to Jack's guitar and Meg's primal drumming. Even though she developed a real style and could hold her own life, her inexperience made recording difficult. In addition to being cold, she was nervous, and they had to keep redoing takes when she screwed up, which was expensive. In between takes, she'd huddle on the studio's thrift store couch, trying to warm up. Jim Diamond, the studio's owner and sound engineer, who would later sue the band over royalties, wondered what was going through her head. Her stony expression didn't give much away. I think she was thinking, what are we doing here in the studio making a record? This is a dumb idea. I thought we just got married and you were going to be an upholsterer and I'm going to work at the Memphis Smoke, he speculated later. Perhaps he wasn't far off. A lot of things were ending in 1999. The 20th century for one. The White's marriage for another. A month after the recording sessions, they played live on a local radio show. Are you a husband-wife duo or a brother-sister duo? The DJ asked. Brother-sister duo, Jack answered quickly. It was still a lie, but only half as much of a lie as it had once been. When Jack said they weren't a couple, that much was now true. They'd started divorce proceedings, 
and Jack had already asked the designer to go through the promo pictures for their first album and digitally erase his wedding ring. He was couch surfing with friends to give Meg some space while she looked for a place of her own. What happened? By now, they were in sync on stage and most of their friends had never seen them argue. There hadn't been any big dramatic showdowns, no screaming, no fights, no storms. It's true that as soon as Meg moved out, Marcy Bolin, the singer for another Detroit band called the Von Bondies, moved in. And it's not entirely hard to imagine why someone wouldn't want to stay married to Jack, a man who has been described by multiple critics as, well, a pretentious control freak. But they never talked to anyone publicly about what the breaking points were. It only added to the enigma of the band. At the time, though, it looked like the band would break too. They'd been scheduled to play a local rock festival, The Blowout, in March. But as the date came closer, Jack started playing with some other musicians from around town, a replacement act for the White Stripes. The show would go on, it seemed, but it would go on without Meg. It was the day of the blowout that she changed her mind. Jack was rehearsing with the other two musicians at his house. The way one of the other players remembered it, Meg decided at the last minute that the Stripes should play at least one last show. Come on, she said. We're family. Let's get together and play. Those who were there, and even some who weren't, would recall that gig at the blowout in 1999 as a landmark night for the White Stripes. The club, a little place called Paychecks, was packed with about 250 people. The White Stripes were white hot. Their album hadn't even been released yet, but when they launched into Sugar Never Tasted So Good, the crowd was singing along word for word. For a lot of people on the Detroit scene, it was the night they realized the band was about to go big. Even so, some were surprised that both Jack and Meg ended up reaffirming their commitment, not to the marriage, but to the band. As bandmates, they would still be constantly in each other's pockets, at rehearsals, in recording studios, on tour, and most of all, on stage. For Jack, it made some sense. Without Meg, the White Stripes couldn't exist, and the band was the source of the most powerful music he'd ever managed to play. But Meg? She'd never had plans to be a musician, much less a rock star. Why wouldn't she walk away? Maybe she needed it as much as Jack did. Maybe she started to love, not the pressure of performing, but the thrill of it. Not the exposure to the crowd, but the power that came from owning it. Maybe the roar of the drums expressed something she hadn't known she wanted to say. Maybe she could leave Jack, but she couldn't leave the music. So they stopped being real husband and wife, but they remained fake siblings. As Jack would put it later, made it for life. The white stripes remain. And then the white stripes blew up. By the time the divorce was finalized in 2000, they had recorded a second album. A year later in 2001, they signed with a major label, V2, which re-released their third album, White Blood Cells, which went platinum and sold over a million copies on the strength of the single Fell in Love with a Girl and its innovative video by director Michel Gondry. By 2002, They'd gotten big enough that Jack could complain to journalist Chuck Klosterman about the perils of success in a story that ran on the cover of Spin magazine. 
To be honest, I have a hard time finding a reason to be on the cover of Spin, Klosterman quoted Jack as saying. It was like being on the MTV Movie Awards. You start asking yourself, what are we getting from this? What are we destroying by doing this? Does it mean anything? Jack was, of course, less horrified by fame than he professed to be. By the end of the year, he had gotten a part in a Hollywood film, Cold Mountain, and was dating its star, Renee Zellweger, who earned an Oscar for her performance. She won his heart by showing off her ability to tell the sex of human skulls. That was the rarefied air Jack had been waiting for all his life. Meg's response to fame was different. While Klosterman noted that Jack spoke in full, articulate paragraphs, he wrote that Meg mostly hugs a pillow and curls her legs underneath her body, hiding feet covered by rainbow-colored socks. Across five more years of touring and three more albums, Meg would never warm up to the press. There were other things about the white stripes that wouldn't change, no matter how big they got. They would maintain the sibling story, which had been credulously repeated by journalists and late-night hosts even after the Detroit Free Press found and published their marriage license. I didn't see any signature on that certificate. It certainly didn't look real to me, Jack said. One of their friends, a British drummer who befriended them on tour and knew the scoop, got in the habit of splitting the difference and describing them as ex-brother and sister. Something else that stayed the same. Long after Meg had become an accomplished, experienced, professional musician, Jack still loved to talk about her drumming as coming out of a naive, inchoate instinct. She's a very simple person. She has an innocent personality, but she's behind the big drum set, pounding away like a caveman. He was always defending her drumming skills this way, because they were always under attack. The simple brutality of her playing style, Klosterman described it as sounding like a herd of Clydesdales falling out of the sky one after another, was constant fodder for rock nerd internet form Flame Wars. In 2003, the joke rumor was that she was really a robot, a human beat machine. There was even an Onion headline, Meg White drum solo maintained steady beat for 23 minutes. But on stage, her impassivity had transformed into serenity. They would finish a concert, and Jack would be sodden and heaving, drenched in sweat, looking like he'd just run the Kentucky Derby and was about to be put down. On the other side of the stage, despite her energetic drumming, Meg would look as calm and collected as she had at the start of the concert. Jack continued to praise her in ways that sounded kind of like condescension. On their third album, Elephant, Meg sings one of the songs, the first time she'd been a vocalist. She doesn't like her own voice at all, Jack said in an interview at the time. I wrote that song for her to sing specifically. She likes it all right now, but she wouldn't tell you that. She's very shy and super polite, and she won't speak unless spoken to. Meg never objected to this kind of characterization. She never said anything publicly at all. Her silence had become part of the band's gimmick. She was the teller to Jack's pen, the silent Bob to his J. The few times she opened her mouth in interviews, Jack would talk over her, explaining that she didn't like talking. Still, whatever relationship she had with Jack, it seemed solid on stage, where they gazed into each other's eyes as they played. And it seemed solid off stage when Meg stood as maid of honor in Jack's second wedding, to a model, 
Karen Ellison, whom he'd met on the set of the video for the song he'd written about his breakup with Renee Zellweger. That was 2005. Jack and Karen wed on a canoe in the Amazon River. The service was conducted by a shaman. Nothing at all like the quiet wedding he and Meg had five years earlier. Or at least Jack told everyone they'd been married in the Amazon by a shaman. He also told everyone it was his first marriage. He was still controlling the narrative. And then something happened that he couldn't control. On June 24, 2007, they began an ambitious North American tour. Jack wanted to play at out-of-the-way places around the continent to support their newly released sixth album, Icky Thump. By now, they were traveling with an entourage and equipment that filled two tour buses and three semi-trucks. But some of the more remote Canadian venues weren't accessible by road, so Jack chartered them a red-and-white prop plane. Trailed by a filmmaker, they played Inuit communities in Nunavut, Here Meg was, in the Arctic she'd fantasized about as a kid, the place where Superman had built his fortress of solitude. But she wasn't alone. In the resulting film of the tour, Under the Great White Northern Lights, she and Jack squabble gamely in front of the cameras. No one can hear a goddamn thing you say, he exclaims when she mutters too low for the microphone to pick up. In the last scene of the film, The camera's eye lingers on Meg's face while Jack plays a song called White Moon. He's at the piano. She's snugged up next to him on the bench. It's a slow, sweet, anguished song with cryptic lyrics about a Faustian longing for more. More knowledge. More authenticity. More experience. A tear runs down Meg's cheek. Is she moved by the music? Is there a message in the lyrics only she knows? Is she thinking about something else, something sad and private? Jack puts his arms around her, and the screen fades to black. The tour started its second half that summer, playing the United States this time. In July, they played a show in South Haven, Mississippi. Afterwards, Meg told Jack's nephew and assistant Ben Blackwell that this is the last White Stripes concert. The last on the tour? No, she said. The last period. It was almost exactly ten years after they played together in the attic of Jack's parents' house. The tour took a break in August, so Jack could be present for the birth of his second child with Karen. But it never resumed. The statement the band issued was succinct. The White Stripes announced today that they are canceling their forthcoming tour due to health issues. Meg White is suffering from acute anxiety and is unable to travel at this time. The White Stripes sincerely apologized to their fans. We hate to let people down and are very sorry. That was all the explanation that was forthcoming from the band's publicity. The press was left to speculate. NME published a piece on the medical definition of acute anxiety. The condition is described as a more severe form of the normal anxiety people experience during the stresses of day-to-day life. Fans offered to fill in for Meg. I'm not awesome, but I could play circles around her. Still, I hope she gets better, wrote a forum poster with the scream name, Some Internet Guy. Over the next three years, the White Stripes still existed, in theory. They played a song on Conan O'Brien's last late night show. He was a super fan and a friend of the band. But they never played a concert again. 
From time to time, Jack would announce that a seventh album was in the works, but it never materialized. And in 2011, they finally, officially disbanded. It was the beginning of Meg's slow disappearance. She made headlines in 2009 when she married Jackson Smith, Patti Smith's son, and again when they divorced in 2013. But otherwise, she vanished from the music scene and from the press. And in vanishing, she became inescapable for Jack, reversing their power dynamic. He went on to lead two other bands, The Tours, formed in 2005, and Dead Weather, which debuted in 2009. He released three solo albums between 2012 and 2018, but reporters always wanted to ask about Meg. What happened to Meg? Why did Meg decide to end the White Stripes? Does she really have anxiety attacks? Where's Meg now? I could have made Revolver and people would still say, where's Meg, he complained. But what was the answer? Why did Meg end the band? You'd have to ask her. I don't know what her reasons are. Having a conversation with Meg, you really don't get any answers. I'm lucky that girl ever got on stage, so I'll take what I can get. Jack made it clear that if it had been up to him, they'd still be playing. But it was Meg, not him, who had determined their trajectory. He claimed, Meg completely controlled the White Stripes. She's the most stubborn person I've ever met, and you don't even get to know the reasons. He sounded more than a little bitter, adding wistfully, all the not talking didn't matter because on stage, nothing I do will top that. Two years later, he told Rolling Stone that they rarely communicate anymore. I don't think anyone talks to Meg. She's always been a hermit, he said. I'm quiet. What can I say? These are among the last words publicly spoken by Meg when prompted by Jack to explain herself in the Northern Lights documentary. Maybe she got tired of saying even this. Maybe it really was just pure anxiety. Or maybe 10 years of performing with her domineering ex-husband was just about enough of public life for her. After all, she had watched from a removed vantage as Jack threw himself into the spotlight, got into spats with the press, fistfights with other musicians, and highly scrutinized and failed relationships with actresses and models. His celebrity and contentious nature eventually even led him to permanently flee their once-beloved hometown of Detroit. Can anyone blame a shy girl who once built an igloo to hide herself from the world for turning her back on that kind of life? It was perhaps the final act of defiance in a public life built on it, misunderstood as the meek foil to Jack's bombastic genius, doing his bidding, posed in a position he designed for her. In reality, Meg's raw and minimalist style defined the white stripes. Her silent intensity became a riddle and compelled millions of fans to puzzle for the solution. And her disappearance has made clear that none is forthcoming. As far as anyone knows, Meg still lives in Detroit. She has not made any public appearances. She does not make public statements. If you play any of the White Stripes' six albums, though, you'll hear her make a noise that sounds like the heart of rock and roll. No doubt Jack White is a visionary artist, a thrilling and innovative guitarist with a knack for hooks and style. The White Stripes sprang from his imagination and ambition. But this is not about him. This is about Meg White. 
the non-musician who became a rock star, the unassuming, pretty, porcelain-complexioned woman who evoked thunder from behind the drum kit, who never did a goddamn thing she didn't want to do. This is about a girl. About a Girl comes to you from Double Elvis and is executive produced by Jake Brennan and Brady Sadler. It was created by Eleanor Wells. This episode was written by S.I. Rosenbaum. Scott Janovitz is the show's producer and composer. Matt Bowden provides logistical support. I'm Nikki Lynette. Thanks for listening. You can follow me at at Nikki Lynette on Twitter and Instagram, at Double Elvis on Instagram, and at Double Elvis FM on Twitter. If you like the show, please be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more great podcasts from Double Elvis, visit doubleelvis.com.